Hello everyone and welcome to the Curious Mind podcast. My name is Gabriel Ellis, I'm a psychotherapist and Buddhist scholar, and in this podcast I take deep dives into complex psychological topics that affect our well-being in general. Today's episode is about a threefold concept by the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, who was working mainly in the 50s and 60s of the 20th century. This threefold concept consists of the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. Now, Lacan was notoriously enigmatic in the way that he spoke, and if you read some of his writings, it even seems like he really didn't want to be understood easily. So you will find some recommendations to read below, and I purposefully don't include his original writings, but rather introduce you to some writings of American authors who are more capable to transmit some of his complex models to us readers today. What follows here and in the interview in which I will mention some more aspects of this threefold concept is my interpretation. I don't want to pretend that I fully understood all the facets of Lacan and he also covered some other psychological ground with his concepts, but I take some aspects where I'm fairly sure that I don't misrepresent his understanding and would like to make it a little bit more relatable to you, the audience. A main concern of Lacan was a proper description of the human mind. In his view, we are inherently fragmented. There is not one core that represents our essence, our personality in some way, but he rather believed and built his philosophy around a fundamental fragmentation that we always try to fix. For him, the beginning of the human mind, the human journey and identity, is a lack of identity. A lack of identity that is inherently unpleasant and that we humans try to somehow fix by identifying ourselves with things that are outside of us. For example, our body, our appearance, uh, our family system, and the social structure around us, which is very much based on language. Now, listeners who have some background in Buddhist philosophy will immediately see the connections there. I have not seen that Lacan himself was greatly influenced by Buddhist philosophy, but here and there he makes references to Zen, so he might have picked up some ideas or at least seen that they represent a similarity with the way he thought. But we cannot maintain at all that he was in any way a traditional expounder of Buddhist philosophy. So if when we are born there is inherently only a lack some sort of a black hole with a gravitational pull that tries to get filled, then what is it that is available? Certainly sensory experience, pleasantness, unpleasantness, not yet further concepts, language is not there, and as you can imagine, so many parts of our experience and identity as adults gets transported to us or is connected to a language or language-like system. 
Lacan himself often referred to the dictum of Freud that the unconscious is structured like a language, and by this you can see already that for Lacan, the unconscious was not an unstructured mess, but was indeed structure, highly structured in a way that is language-like, and that is therefore also decipherable for us and to be understandable in a certain way comparable to learning a foreign language. So for the baby, there is mostly a chaos around the mind with its experiences. The body itself that the baby is exposed to is a treasure trove of a myriad different experiences which at the beginning don't seem to obey to a specific logic and only with time the organism understands that there is a connection between displeasure and how some objects around the baby, by which I mean the mother and then the father, react to it and uh, makes the connection between crying, for example, and then the soothing comfort of food or touch or shelter. Now this complete chaos, says Lacan, will be interrupted at a rather early stage in the child's development in the first years. And he linked it to a very specific event in the child's life, which is the recognition of myself in the mirror, which is the first time when I look into the mirror and realize that the reflection there is not another being, but is actually my appearance. This, for Lacan, is the first time when my existential lack can be satisfied by an experience which he calls the imaginary. I see an image, literally, in the mirror, and that gives me some satisfaction. Why is it satisfactory? Because in contrast to my experience, which is absolutely chaotic and doesn't seem to obey many rules, I see in the mirror a coherence of an image that I can strive to identify with and hence to try to adopt to be as coherent as the image in the mirror looks like. So this is the beginning not only with a very fundamental identification with the body, but more specifically with the appearance of the body. Just as the mother and the father are represented in the baby's mind by their appearance. Now the baby has another tool for self-identification, which is something very parallel and symmetrical to the parent's appearance, which is its own appearance. And thus, by identifying with the possibilities of the body that is capable of movement and control, it tries to achieve much more coherence than what it had before, which was only comfort, discomfort, crying, little pieces of puzzle that it tried to somehow put together but didn't know exactly how. And now the baby has a tool, it has its mirror image, or a little bit later on, the representation of the mirror image in the baby's mind. Now we can go on a little bit further and see how that relates to our processing as adults in our adult life. And this imaginary attempt 
of satisfaction. This we will see represented when we're fascinated by the features of certain objects or bodies. When I, as a heterosexual man, am fascinated by the appearance of a certain woman and imagine that if I could get her to be my girlfriend or my partner, then I would be perfectly content. If I could just have her, I would be perfectly happy. Now, obviously, this represents a rather primitive processing in our minds, Primitive in the sense there's nothing wrong with it, but it just doesn't meet the reality. When I finally somehow can get together with this imagined beauty, then I realize that there is much more complexity to her. She is not just an object, but she's a complex subject that certainly doesn't obey my rules. I cannot dictate her what to think, and I certainly cannot dictate her to make me satisfied all the time. So this frustration with what I imagined my satisfaction to be, this frustration is what makes the functioning on this imaginary level so immature. Going on, we can also see that we apply the same way of functioning also to objects that we are supposed to buy. Uh, on which a good part of our consumerist society is based on. They are trying to sell us objects that look good, technical gadgets, cars, fashion, makeup, accessories, and so on, suggesting that if I would acquire something that looks that good, that it would substantially contribute to my satisfaction. And most of you will know the limitation of these as well. The imagination that I had of the satisfaction that I would acquire with the car ultimately, probably, will be frustrated. So the same logic that if I put my hopes on acquiring, so to speak, another human by attaching myself to them applies also to objects there will ultimately be a similar frustration. Frustration not with the object itself, but a frustration with the expected capabilities of this object to give me lasted, continuous satisfaction. The symbolic goes beyond the imaginary and is actually what makes us human for Lacan. Because as I described it, you can imagine that some of the processes that are responsible for the imaginary satisfaction are also valid for the animal realm. For Lacan, the unconscious is structured like a language. And what is happening in the symbolic is that the developing child gets a representation of society communicated by and transmitted by language and language-like communication structures. That means that the child starts to learn that the world is governed not by the features of objects alone, but by rules, regulations, agreements, and so on. Everyone who has seen children growing up also sees how they are fascinated by rules and laws. They are subjected to it. This is how parents exercise power over the child. This is what they teach them. 
that there is a certain structure throughout the day, that in certain contexts it's okay to behave in a playful way, and in other contexts they have to be quiet and more obedient, for example. Uh, this is how they are introduced to child play. And then it's quite easy to see how when children are among themselves, they will in a way replicate what they have learned, which is the application of rules, norms, and laws to other children and their interplay as well. So this is the introduction of the child to the wider world of the rules of society. And this is the period of time when the unconscious of the child gets formed in a more substantial way that stays valid throughout the adult life. Everything that society has to offer is encoded in this symbolic. For example, ethics and morals, or aesthetics, family life, relationship satisfaction, the beauty of communication, and so forth. Of course, it comes with its own frustrations, but essentially what adults and people when they mature pick up and learn by time is that their development within the symbolic realm is the most promising approach to master life. So over time, with the decades, this is what we usually try to figure out how to do better, which is to apply the rules and norms of society in the way that they suit me. And we try to manifest and come up with our own rules and regulations that allow me as an individual to maintain myself in a satisfactory way in whatever part of society I'm positioning myself in. And actually we could stop here and there would be no necessity for a third element because the symbolic basically covers the most important fields in the development of the human mind and our unconscious. So what is this supposed real that is necessary as the third element? If you think about it, what society provides us is a very specific idea of how our development should be. It's a very specific proposition. If I teach my child that in order to find satisfaction, it has to navigate between the rules and norms of society and creating its own rules and norms, then I give it a very specific idea of how life should be led. Now, reality, so to speak, might not be really interested in me as an individual trying to figure out laws. There is the basic insecurity of our bodily life. It is our experience that things happen around us that don't care much about my plans. If I try to make a career over several decades with the idea to retire and then enjoy my life to a certain extent in a certain way to do a world trip or to retire to my small house that I have bought somewhere in nature, whatever the fantasy might be. Often there are elements that just obstruct my nice ideas that I have developed. Just as an example, my relationship might have not worked out and my partner divorces me or I get sick and become somehow incapable physically 
of enjoying my life. I might be in constant pain. Someone dear to me dies, uh, which robs me of a good portion of the joy that I experience in normal life. All these things are fateful events which just happen because all our attempts as individuals and as a culture to control our environments, to make it predictable so that with the right input I get a guaranteed outcome, uh, these are all things that reality does not much care about. Now, if you think back, if the unconscious and the conscious are fundamentally based on a symbolic representation, then this uncertainty of the real does not have much space there. It is not represented. And indeed, Lacan claims that the real cannot be represented because what the mind has acquired over time, its symbolic structure, its symbolic representations, are conceptual. They are artificial crutches to help me make it through my life. Reality is beyond that and has an infinite capability to disturb my ideas, to shock me, to give me an unpredicted depression, to have someone promoted next to me in my office that has not deserved it, according to my understanding, and so forth. The possibilities are limitless, not to speak of natural disasters, climate change, and so forth. And all these insecurities that reality can provide without asking me are fundamentally so frightening to us that for the conscious and the unconscious mind, it is easier to leave it out and not to give it a too big space in our mental development. If we were to do it, we would also not really accurately represent the real, but mostly, for example, we would react with a depressed state of mind because of the consequences of the insecurity. Again, there is a similarity to Buddhist philosophy because in Buddhism there is this principle which is called anicca and is, in fact, impermanence. So one fundamental aspect of Buddhist philosophy that supposedly, if we develop our mind around it, will help us to accept the basic insufficiency, insecurity of life. And the more we are able to do it, the more we can grasp a satisfaction in the moment, which does not depend either on the imaginary aspects of acquiring other people, uh, a beautiful body, objects, and so forth, nor on figuring out society and its rules or my own, but to somehow float upon the events of daily life and its insecurities and find something that is independent of the promises of society that if we would abide by the rules, we would reap the results in the form of more lasting satisfaction, but we become independent of it and can give the mind a freedom which then produces satisfaction on its own without specific objects or without a specific understanding to be acquired. In the Buddhist line of development, the only understanding that is necessary 
is the understanding of the mind and how to independently produce satisfactory state of mind without the help and the crutches of objects. As I mentioned, these topics are very complex, and this was just a short introduction. I can recommend some books about Lacan and these concepts. I think it is very fruitful to try to get a further understanding of them, because then what happens is that one can look at one's own life, see how my needs are structured, get an idea of in how far I am processing my life and my needs in a rather imaginary way or in another rather symbolic way. I can see how much I give those aspects of the real some place in my mind and in my life and get an idea of in which direction I probably have to develop as an individual so that the chances for a more independent and long-lasting satisfaction in my life can become possible. In the following conversation, I will try to elucidate some more aspects of this imaginary, symbolic and real. Maybe by repetition and some examples, this admittedly very abstract concept becomes more familiar and maybe it will lead you to be more curious and try to find out a little bit more for yourself. When we look at the original situation where the imaginary was described by Lacan, it was in the stage of early childhood when children first discovered themselves in the mirror and realized that it's them in the mirror. And as he describes it, that comes along with a great satisfaction. Why is it so satisfactory to uh, realize that it's you in the mirror? He says, because before you did that, your experience with yourself and in the world was highly fragmented. There is not a bracket that keeps it all together. Emotions are going here and there. There's a little bit of logic in life because of parents and because of you know repeating patterns over the day. But it's all falling apart again and again. There is little stability or metaphors that help me to keep it all in to form a certain logic. Now, my parents, when I see them, they seem fairly consistent because they look the same. So they come into the room, I identify them, but I don't have myself the understanding that I have something similar to provide. I don't know yet that they see me as their child. I have only my experience. My experience that is that I myself am completely disintegrated, that bad moods, hunger, pain comes and goes. Somehow it's satisfied, sometimes not. It's very chaotic. But my parents, they seem to be stable. Like my mom is providing with food, shelter, security, and so on. My dad has also something to give, some sense of security and stability, but I am not. So when I discover myself in the mirror, I discover that actually there is something that is a counterpart to the stability of parents and other people that I have that myself as well. If you take a photograph, if I look into the mirror, it's not something that falls apart all the time, like my feelings and my moods and my sensory experience. No, this seems fairly stable. When I discover myself in the mirror, suddenly I discover an aspect of myself that is highly attractive because it is coherent. And then what happens, because it's not intuitive, I had to discover my image. It's not something that every child knows intuitively. 
I had to see it, I had to recognize myself, I had to discover it. So it is something else than myself, even though it belongs to me. But the relationship that I have to this mirror image is mysterious, which allows me to develop a very specific desire, which is to become my mirror image. I want to be, I want to experience, I want the coherence of what I see in the mirror. But what's wrong with that? Because it's a fantasy. This is the problem. But you can't stay, live your life fragmented. No, no, obviously. The fragmentation is unpleasant. Right. This is what children want to get rid of from day one when they get born. Oh, okay. So this is how it starts. They try to keep it together. They try to find logic and behavior. This is why, no, this is not conscious, of course, right? But this is why they develop a logic of crying because when there is in a somewhat healthy family, when children cry, parents try to appease them, right? So then food comes and take care of the child. So it's a very simple conditioning that happens. Children do a lot of trial and error. Some things work. Crying works. The mom comes, the nanny comes, the the siblings, whoever is responsible, they come and they take care of you. Mm -hmm. But it's not as consistent. It's still very fragmented. Still, there's a lot of open questions in the child's mind. It would like to control everything. And children quickly, when they get a little bit older, they very consciously try to control their environment. Uh, Every parent knows that. But it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel unified. There is no complete logic in there. There's, it's still very frightening, everything. So when they discover the mirror image, they have discovered something that seems to be attainable, as if kind of saying, oh, that's me anyway. Let me just try to be more the aspect of my mirror image than I have been before. There's something comforting in that, in the unity of the shape of the image. So it's flawed, it's promising, because it doesn't seem very far away. I, after a while, don't need the mirror image anymore. I look down on myself without a mirror, and I recognize that the unity of the body is still there, the unity of the appearance is still there. So everything that I'm doing in these lines, that I try to look good, I try to look in shape, I try to have nice dresses and so on. All of these things that are very close to a basic sense of unity. This is uh, what represents the imaginary. And now a little bit expanded, because you mentioned the apartment and the car. This is not too far away. It's actually when I see a beautiful car, there is a similar process going on. There is as if my unconscious would say, oh my God, if I would to obtain this object, maybe I could become a little bit like it. I would get a part of the beauty of the car, if I could call it mine. Of course, it's even more unrealistic than with the body. So as much as I cannot just be my shell, just be my appearance, even though many people try, right, with plastic surgery and all the fashion craziness and so on. This is even more unrealistic, but the hope is there. And certainly our capitalist system nourishes that. Like, be that, be your car, be this beautiful apartment. This is not very conscious, but our unconsciousness is processing in this way. We get dangled the carrot in front of us and it's said like, okay, you know what? Maybe your appearance is not the most satisfying and you got not credit for how you look like. 
But here, Society Dangle is the character part of us. Here we provide you with a beautiful looking thing that if you can attach yourself to it, you will reap the results from the object and you can claim them as your own. So even though it's an external object, it's not very far from the appearance, right? So people who have the fortune and unfortunate to be very good looking, they know this effect. People look at them, you see the admiration in their eyes, but you are immediately distanced from it. Like, they don't even know me. They think I'm cool or beautiful and stuff. They don't know me. They don't know what is going on in my life. So we don't make the mistake as much as we find it pleasant that we get acknowledged for our looks. This is why we dress nicely and, you know, comb our hair and, and so on, put on jewelry and rings. But we know that it's there's something superficial about it. We know that we are not completely our appearance. Now, this is you subconsciously know it because you don't consciously know it, right? Like when you go out and buy a Tesla, you then enjoy the car, you take care of the car, you know, you... Yes. Right, so it's unconscious? Yes, it's unconscious. And because it is ultimately unsatisfying, because of that, because it's not real, because it's imagined, this is why we need again and again an influx of new objects. Because the promise of the old one has worn off. The strongest imaginary impact of the object is before I have obtained it. I see the car, it's like, oh my God, that is amazing. And that hope, this feeling, it's, it's a hope, it's an expectation, goes on until you bought it. And with the buying, it starts wearing off. Then you have it. Then that's it. There's not much more to gain. Are you saying that even if you want to get a Tesla, for example, right, and you go and buy a car, you buy the car, but you keep in mind that this is not what is you. This is something you bought and you're going to play with it, but this doesn't define you. Yes. The question is, do I get this imaginary satisfaction out of it? Is okay. this what I aim for when I obtain an object? Okay. Do I want to get a little bit of the benefits of the beauty of the object for myself? So that is what you're saying is the wrong thing to do? Because it's that'll not, fall through? It's, I have to maintain it. It's, it's built on a hope. It's imaginary. It's not real. It's not lasting. It is maintained only when I take an imagined perspective of society and I Im imagine the other guy who doesn't have the object that I have admiring me for it. Yeah, but that is good, right? Because think about it. The person had to work really hard to get a Ferrari or a Tesla, right? Otherwise, everyone average can get a Honda Civic. But it is the person has worked very hard. So why would the person not want to be admired? Like if I see someone riding a Ferrari, I'm already looking at that person as like, wow, this guy is a success. I would see two levels there. One is philosophical and kind of principle. But let's not go there on the pragmatic level. If this is the only bet that I have, if this is the only thing that I want to be admired for, because I'm rich and I'm having stuff that other people don't have, this hollows you out internally and you're bound to be extremely unhappy. Because people end up this way. The only thing that they're admired for are their objects. And I don't care at all about who you are as a person. This is the tragic of rich people when someone wants to befriend them, the doubt that they have in their mind, oh, they just want my money. This is rich people's paranoia. This is why rich people hang out with rich people, because they have the immediate doubt in most cases, right? I'm simplifying. They have the doubt that if someone who is of, you know, two levels below on the social ladder 
that they're not interested in them as a person. They just want the stuff. They just want access to money. So it becomes a curse if yeah. you are overly identified with the objects that you have surrounded yourself with. What about the symbolic then? The symbolic is more about rules, navigating in society and figuring society out and therefore have means of control. I control the circumstances in which I'm in. This is the symbolic. It's symbolically encoded in language and knowledge. And when I move my desires, my needs away from the imaginary, and I'm telling myself, you know what, this cars and the clothes, physical beauty, that's superficial. Like I had partners who were into my looks, that was not satisfying. So what else am I gonna do? I'm investing in knowledge. I try to learn about history, you know, all these things that you mentioned before, because this is more satisfying. The needs and desires that I have, I give them an output that has the possibility to express itself in more free ways than just appearances and superficial stuff. I want something that is more sustainable. When you are a knowledge person and you educated yourself well, you are actually able to navigate social situations quite well because of that knowledge. When you know how subcultures work, when you know how to behave, when you know how to interact with many types of people because you were interested in multicultural stuff, you have been traveling around, you will be thrown into a new situation and you will be able to handle it much better than someone who is just able to throw money around himself. Let me give you a real life example, right? In this yeah. case, if you keep it in your mind that my status at my work or the money that I make doesn't define me, what yes. motivation do you have to work hard, to engage yourself, to play politics at work and to grow? Let me put it this way. People who have discovered something else than just money and status, they have something that enriches their personality. So what you're saying is, if I were to put it into a real example, so yeah. I've had people I worked with and some of the people I work with, I realized that they don't care about anything else but how to grow the corporate ladder. And I discovered that even though I wanted to learn a few things from them on how they grew the corporate ladder, I also discovered that they are really not caring about anyone more than just themselves or maybe their immediate family. Yeah. And then I also worked with other people who really care about the people they work with, who really care about society and in their talks and all they're being genuine. That yeah. gives you a feeling of, I would like to be like this person. Even more, they're interested in a conversation with you. Yeah. And then you're interested in knowing how they ended up this route and you are more yes. interested in being like them. Yes. So this is more sustainable because when the door closes, they still have something out of it. They're not dependent on the clicks that the interview got or on how they performed in their presentation. Sure, they want it because they want to secure the degrees of freedom that, that money gives. This is a fact. But they can lean back and have some satisfaction of life, which is beyond that. They're not completely dependent on it. Uh, let me be completely motivation-driven, desire-driven. What do I want? Now, naturally, I want to be happy. I want to feel good and so on. But then we can branch out a little bit more, be more specific. I want to be appreciated. So these are basic things that most people, if they have a little bit of insight, would admit to. Like, I want that. Mm -hmm. If this is a question, how do I get that? How do I get acceptance? And then my answer is through money. 
how do I get appreciation? I buy it. If someone were to answer this way, I would say, well, this is not sustainable. People will take your money ultimately, but they will not love you for that. They will love your money. So running after the money in the hopes to be happy through it, mm-hmm. there is a logical mistake. If you, if you put out this, why do we have depressed, successful artists, musicians, politicians, and so on? They get more recognition than anyone else in the world. Mm-hmm. Like you have people out there with 20 million Instagram followers. And yeah, indeed, I mean, yeah. right? I mean, I look at Brad Pitt and, and, and I think, what problems do, can they possibly have? Like, this is Brad Pitt. It's impossible that he has problems. Impossible. Sure. Or to break it even further down, people who have weight problems, they might look at a thin person and think they must be the happiest person in the world. They're thin. If they have any problems, then they're stupid because they don't know what they have. Which is in some sense true. <laughs> no, it's not true. It's a fundamental misunderstanding. It's it's when poor people look at a rich person, right? When you know it from India, when when they have the fantasy of how it is in the West and think that everyone is happy because they have money. That is actually a good point, yeah. But then they come with their own set of problems. It's a fundamental misunderstanding based on uh, processing purely on the imaginary level. So are we saying that we we should be more cognizant or we should be a little bit more aware of this when we look at other people is that what we are missing today because we are walking in uh finding new things that we want to achieve thinking they'll find us happiness and repeating the same pattern over and over again and still not being happy is that is that what we are trying to get to or you know that's what you and i have been working on a lot but What we are missing is the real. This is the third thing. The real is incomprehensible. It doesn't care about us. It's nothing that can be understood. It's not a structure or something that can be investigated scientifically. It's beyond our reach. But it has a way to come into our life, to breach into our life. It leaves a trace. Trace in life or trace as in like impressions with you? Yes, and a deep impression. A deep impression. Something, you know, Lacan used to say, the real reveals itself in a traumatic way. Okay, so the real is, for example, the fundamental fact of impermanence. The real hits you when someone unexpectedly dies. Without reason. So so we are looking for reason. Why did this person die all of a sudden? Maybe he drank too much. Or without reason. Life doesn't care. Life is not interested in giving reasons or not reasons. But when it hits us, Something happens with us. It's a shock. It and is a shock. And what do you do some, with it then? Then this catapults you, it distances you from the daily routine and, and gives you thoughts like, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing here? But that's very temporary too, right? You'll feel that way for a week. And then so, after that, it, so that, so let's say in my case, right? So a coworker yeah. of mine that I knew, young kid, he just passed away. He yes. had a headache and that's it. Mm -hmm. Right. So that shocks you and you're in shock for a week, for two weeks. But then you get back to your life. And I've had people whose cousins have passed and everything or their sisters passed away and they get shocked for a little longer, maybe six months. 
But yes. then they are back to their natural self. If they were a complete idiot before, or they were being a complete douchebag, they'll continue being a douchebag even after that. So, yes, it might be. It, yeah, it doesn't stick to a lot of people, I think. Right. And then life hits them again. Right. Now, most people don't learn very much out of it. But let's say someone gets influenced by it. Right. Hypothetically. Mm-hmm. So they look at the life, they look at the work and someone's like, oh, my God, I was putting all this hope and faith and expectation in my work. And then what? Next week I was I was hoping for retirement. But look at that person, retirement and then found out cancer. Look at that person still working, car accident. What am I going to do with it? Right. So they could develop a detachment. They could tell themselves, I cannot wait. I can I cannot wait for my happiness. Like I'm betting on potentially on a dead horse here. Right. So can I stop you there? So is this like where a lot of people are, if you go online, a lot of people have these images of saying, live life as if today is your last day. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I think in your sense, when I worked with you and I brought this up to you, what you were saying was live life as if it's your last day. Yeah, but you have to also plan that what if you end up living till 80, right? Because then you, if you spend all your money today, that sucks. Yes, so, yes. so are how should people, or let's say people who have gone through this, or people who have not gone through it, how do they think about, or how should they start thinking about living their lives? Right? Not, I get your point. Not saving till retirement. If I wanted to travel, I took the time in between my career to go out to Europe and travel. So that's good. I feel happy about it. So, how yes. should people operate with the real in mind? See, if it's not real. If people have a fake attitude of, you know, I'm I'm dancing as if nobody's watching and so on, right? I'm just enjoying my life. In, in many cases, you know it's not true. It's not real. So it literally, it's not real. They're just, this is an imaginary or a symbolic thing. It's a thing in culture. Like, it sounds cool. Uh, you want to attach yourself to that slogan, right? It's not informed by, it's not a consequence of, of being hit by the truth of it. Now, if we assume that, leaving aside the question how you get there, but if you if you come across people who have internalized it more, right, to a certain extent, you see it because they are more independent from what happens around them. I will end the recording of the interview at this point. I have been focusing more on the level of the imaginary and the symbolic to shed more light on the first two aspects of Lacan's concept. I will dedicate more time to the real and its connection to Buddhist philosophy and meditation practice in further episodes so that with time you might get some more clarity on what Lacan might have meant with it, and certainly how I implement it in my work with my clients. That's it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Feel free to leave a comment, and if you enjoyed it, tune in to another episode on this channel. Below you can also find a link to my website, elliscounseling.com, and my Facebook page, Ellis Counseling and Psychotherapy, where you can contact me for online therapy or counseling sessions.